This episode is brought to you by GSK. No two cancers are the same. That's why at GSK, our oncology scientists are working on personalized treatments. One way we design these new medicines is by harnessing a patient's own immune system to target and destroy tumors. And by creating new combinations of medicines that work better together, we hope to transform cancer treatment for patients in the future. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Now, imagine you could call up a friend and say, meet me at the bar and tell me what's going on with the economy. Now imagine that's actually a fun conversation. Now stop imagining and subscribe to the Planet Money podcast. Find Planet Money on iTunes along with other NPR podcasts. So an idea for the times we live in. Who needs the college campus anyway? College by Internet. You get to learn at home. You make your own schedule. You save money. The thing is, the demise of the traditional college campus has been talked about for a long time now. And the question is, will it be different this time with online education? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are here at Columbia University's Miller Theater. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. More clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Our debate, as always, goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. First, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Anant Agarwal. And Anant, you are a professor at MIT. You are the CEO of edX. That is an online learning platform uh, founded by Harvard and by MIT. Uh, Anant, you are not only the CEO and the president of edX, but you also taught its first course, which was circuits and electronics. You had an enrollment of 155,000 students from 162 countries. Is that, a, is that a hard course? It's not a hard course. It is a MIT hard course. <laughs> <laughs> How many passed? 7,200. Less than 5%. The, the same percentage passed the course as MIT admitted into its uh, current batch. MIT admitted 7% of the people who applied to MIT this year, so about the same number passed this MIT hard course. Okay, I can see you're good with numbers. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Let's welcome <laughs> Anant, Anant Agarwal. <laughs> and Anant, tell us who your partner is. The inimical Ben Nelson. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome Ben Nelson, please. Ben, you are also arguing for the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. In 2010, you left your job as CEO of Snapfish. You had a plan to reinvent the university experience. The result is the Minerva Project. And your plan is to rival the kind of education you can get at the Ivies at a fraction of the cost. And you've said you want to make it more difficult to get into Minerva than to get into Yale. So how many people were in your inaugural class? So we admitted 45 students uh, this year. That represents a 2.5% acceptance rate. Uh, and we admitted uh, these students not based on an artificial capacity constraint, but we actually admitted every single person that passed our bar. Uh, and one of these extraordinary students is right there in the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks to Ben Carver, and welcome to the debate. Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is op- obsolete. And we have two debaters who are arguing against this motion. First, please welcome Jonathan Cole. 
Jonathan, this is a home crowd for you. You are the John Mitchell Mason Professor at Columbia University. You've served 14 years as provost, dean of, and dean of faculties. You wrote the book, The Great American University. You wrote the book about this whole story. You've been in academia your entire career. And this particular university, Columbia, uh, you have seen through decades and decades of change and growth. Just to give the audience an idea of how much change and growth, what year did you actually start at Columbia? I uh, began it uh, 1960, the fall of 1960. I've never left, and I say I'm not gainfully employable by any other institution, quite frankly. <laughs> um, but I've been here. I've gone through uh, many roles, and I've seen many changes from wearing a beanie as a freshman and having tug-of-wars with ropes to, uh, well, I won't go into the rest. I mean. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Cole. And Jonathan, your partner is? Uh, Rebecca Shulman. She's um, fantastic, irrepressible, and logically incredibly sound. Ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Shulman. Rebecca Schumann, you are arguing against the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete, you're a columnist for Slate. You are also an adjunct professor, a professor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, you teach German. Um, we're, we're curious, have you ever had a conversation with your students in your German class about their preferences or dislike, however, for online education and for what are called MOOCs? Yeah, actually, I was just talking to them about it yesterday. I don't teach German right now, I teach... Um, Something similar to the core curriculum here at Columbia, actually. I teach the freshman literature sequence. And I asked them yesterday, how do you guys feel about MOOCs and how do you feel about online classes? They didn't know what MOOCs are, and most of them do not like their online classes. Well, that sounds like an advantage for your side already. (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Schumann, thank you very much. And we're going to be hearing that term MOOCs. So stay tuned to hear it defined, because it's important. Our motion is this. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here in round one to open and arguing for the motion, Anant Agarwal, he is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT and the CEO of edX, an online learning destination. Ladies and gentlemen, Anant Agarwal. Our education system, this, this whole system of the lecture really is based on the factory model of education. Put a whole bunch of people sitting in a classroom, and, uh, and then you have a person lecturing at them. It's a very, very efficient system. It started about 1,000 years ago, and this university, Bologna, is still standing. It's 1,000 years old. And you know what? Nothing has changed. You could wake up 1,000 years behind you, 1,000 years ahead, and absolutely nothing has changed. Everything has changed around us, but the university education system hasn't. Our communication is different, that we have smartphones, our medical system has uh, changed, but our education system hasn't changed. Don't we believe it is important? The online education of today is very different from my grandfather's uh, online education. It's completely different today. In this new system, we can use self-based learning. Just imagine I can watch a video of an instructor. I can pause the video. I can rewind the video. Not once, but six times. This, this self-pacing allows me to learn at my own pace. I wish I had that when I was, uh, you know, uh, I was an undergraduate student. Another thing, I would submit my homework, and I would get the graded homework back two weeks later if I was lucky. I still haven't gotten some homeworks back 32 years later. <laughs> no, no feedback. The feedback came too late. I wasn't interested in the feedback when it came late. But with online learning today, if you go on to edX.org or one of the MOOC platforms, 
Feedback is instantaneous. We can grade all kinds of questions, equations. We can even grade essays, believe it or not. Instant feedback is critical. And there are many, many, many studies. Education researchers have known this for 40 years. A study by Chen in 2003 showed that if you provide instant feedback, students learn better. We also do another thing. We use active learning. Heck, just go back to Socrates. It's a Socratic method. You know, you teach by asking questions. So here what we do is we can interleave videos with interactive exercises. So you watch a video at your own pace, then you go answer a question to see if you've learned the material or not. This is mastery learning. And studies like the Craig and Lockhart study from as, old as, as, as early as 72 has shown that this, again, improves learning outcomes. So online learning today incorporates all of these principles and is completely different from uh, what it was before. We can even bring gamification into our system. We can do online labs. We have online labs in biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, where people can play around and bring gamification into the picture. Our millennial generation is completely different. And, and they learn differently. The millennial generation is able to do these things. And then in the classroom, you still need that. You know, they interact with each other, learn the soft skills, and so on and so forth. But they can get all of the content and so on completely online, and that's how they want to learn. They want gamification. They want engagement. Everybody should really have a high-quality education. And with online learning, I can really bring this to the classroom as well and bring in, cl- bring in online learning to create the blended model of learning. Anant Agarwal, I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you very much. Anant Agarwal, ladies and gentlemen. Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to make his uh, position clear against this motion, Jonathan Cole. He is the John Mitchell Mason Professor at Columbia University, where he served as provost and dean of faculties. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Cole. Online education will not replace the great colleges and universities in the United States. It's the selective colleges, MOOCs, will be one of many forms of new technology that will be useful, mostly for courses, as was pointed out by my worthy opponent, where you can get the right answer that's at the back of the book. For all other courses where there are subtleties in interpretation, where there's a need to argument, where there's a need for critical thinking, for close reading, MOOCs will be less useful. In fact, as the biological scientist Stuart Feinstein says, questions are more relevant than answers. But who, in fact, takes those courses from all over the world? A noble purpose. The people who take that course, at least from the evidence that we have to the moment, are people who are already educated, not the people who we're trying to target for education. The next point is that there is no good empirical evidence that supports the idea that MOOCs represent a disruptive technology that will overturn the current business model of the best colleges and universities. Let me just tick off a few of the things for which there is absolutely no good empirical evidence. There's no economic or cost model that has been shown to work. The cost of creating content is very high. Friends of mine have told me that they spend $100,000, $200,000, or $300,000 a course. In short, there's no evidence that MOOCs will, in fact, lower the cost of tuition. There's no method that has been shown as to how intellectual property will be divided up, how much will go to the professors, how much to the university. There's no good evidence that MOOCs have a democratizing effect. There's no good evidence on how people with different learning styles respond to the flipped classroom. 
There's no good evidence about who drops out of MOOC courses. Those 7,000 who graduated may well have been people who already took the course at MIT. People learn from each other when they eat together, read together, converse together, sleep together. If nothing else, sex will reinforce bricks over clicks <laughs> on the campus. This is not to say I want you to know that the Khan Academy where small, short, highly focused courses are offered won't be appealing to some. It is, and it will be. But it is not going to end the need for the kind of close interaction that we need to find in the classroom, in physical structures. MOOCs are one tool that will help to make higher learning better, not cheaper, for both undergraduates and professional school students. It's not likely to infiltrate the world of the laboratory, however. It will have a tremendous effect on accessing information, but that is no substitute for being able to analyze Moby Dick. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. You have heard from the first two debaters. And now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern uh, Ben Nelson. He is the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Minerva Project. That is a new online undergraduate program that aims to reinvent the university experience. And Ben, we had four teachers up here, and I was hoping that one of them would, in the opening statements, explain to those who do not know what a MOOC is. So I want to give you an extra 15 seconds to tell uh, everyone in our audience and our listeners what this odd word means and why it is exceedingly relevant to this discussion. Uh, So a MOOC is a massive open online course. And as uh, Jonathan pointed out, it is one of several formats and technologies used for online education. That's perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, in his opening statement, please welcome Ben Nelson. What what Jonathan put uh, together as the framework was a critique of the state of online education, not even online education, but a segment of online education today as it stands. It was not a critique of the potential of online education, and it was based on an analysis of a very small portion of American higher education. But we're not talking about the future of the most elite institutions. We're talking about the future of higher education in general. And so let's look at the facts. The facts of the matter is that when you look at what even the elite universities do, they are largely about disseminating knowledge. Lecture-based courses, the lecture hall, where a university professor stands up in front of a large audience, gets paid three, four hundred thousand dollars fully loaded, and teaches one, maybe two courses a year to 200 students, is not an economically viable model. And it is, in fact, a worse form of delivery than what Anant described. The very first version, the version 1.0 of these massive open online courses. But let's go beyond the lecture. 
let's address even the most esoteric elements of higher education, the close conversations between students and professor in small groups that explore subject matter. Well, turns out you can do that online as well, and you can do it in a better way than you can in an offline classroom. When we first created our platform at Minerva, which is limited to 19 students per course, every student is on live video, we went to the University of Washington Medical School, and we tested a very rudimentary version of our platform with a live class offline and a live class online taught by the same professor, the same subject matter. The results were universally accepted, that the online class was far superior to the offline class, simply for the fact of the matter that even though there were the same number of students in the class, when you look straight into that camera and the professor sees your face and all of the other students see your face, you are at paying attention. What we all have to remember is we are at the dawn of interactive, high-quality personalized education, whether it's a broadcast to many, whether it's in a small seminar format, or whether it is done in an individualized adaptive learning platform that caters the process of education to the individual student. But the fact that we are at the dawn means that none of us in this room, including Anant and myself who are working on this every day, can conceive where this will bring us in the future. We know that technologies will continue to improve and will bring the intellectual development of students, not just among the elite, but among students around the world to a newer and higher level. Thank you. Thank you, Ben Nelson. Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And now to put forward her argument against this motion, let's welcome Rebecca Schumann. She is a columnist for Slate and the, for the Chronicle of Higher Education's Vitae Hub and the author of the forthcoming book, Kafka and Wittgenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Schumann. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here and to my co-panelists for just presenting. Ben, I did not know I made 400 thousand dollars a year to te- I, I teach two classes a year and I make fourteen thousand dollars a year <laughs> all right so what I want to talk to you guys about is the MOOC I'm taking right now uh, I'm taking a MOOC I'm taking a MOOC with edX and when you sign up with edX they ask you why you're signing up and I wrote definitely not for opposition research for the debate I'm going to do um, <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, It's called Think 101X, the Science of Everyday Thinking, um, with two great professors from Australia. I say I love it. It's fantastic. It's pretty easy. It doesn't take too much time. I've learned a lot. But I'm a 37-year-old American with a doctorate. I already know how to learn. I learn for fun. I do it as a hobby. And it's a great hobby for me as a dabbler. But I don't think that it is an adequate replacement for college yet. Uh, There are a lot of reasons for this, but the number one reason for this is really just one word, and that word is contact. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you'll vote no on the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete, because more clicks means less contact, less contact with professors like me. I'm not a superstar. I'm not a celebrity. I don't even have tenure, and I never will. But that doesn't matter to my students. I want to talk a little bit about some of my students today. I have one student who lives with dyslexia, and she is so smart in class. She's just brilliant in class, but her written work really suffers. If she were taking uh, an online course, she might be 
mistaken quite unfairly for somebody who was not as bright as she is or drunk, maybe. But the fact that we can actually talk to each other in class has changed her life because she knows that I know how smart she is. I have another student who's so shy that he shook last semester in class. Whenever I called on him, he gave a presentation and he actually stopped halfway through because he went so clammy. Two weeks ago, he came in, second semester, same class. Dostoevsky killed it, did such a great job, blew us all away. And I was talking to him about his story because I wanted to use it today. And he said, I want you to know that our class has helped me learn how to talk to people. The importance of that cannot be overstated. It has helped him learn how to talk to people. People, my students, actual real people. I know them, they know me. I don't just enter their lives with the dissemination of content. They enter mine, and we connect. And that's important when things are going well in class. It's even more important when things are going poorly. Uh, The Community College Research Center right here at Columbia did a multi-year study where they determined that when students at community colleges and and other sort of non-prestige institutions are struggling and they're taking classes online, they're much more likely to fail, they're much more likely to drop out, they're much more likely to give up. So right now, students aren't just failing online classes in enormous numbers, although they are. Online classes are also failing them. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca Schumann. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you in the live audience. The motion is more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Now I want to point out that there is a, there is a level of nuance to this debate. Neither team is deep into their corner where they don't see merit in the other side's argument. The team arguing more clicks, fewer bricks is not saying no bricks ever again. And the team on the other side is not saying no clicks ever. So let's make it clear that this is not uh, this kind of fight to the death over this issue, but it's it's a discussion over emphasis. And I think some of that emphasis has to do with faith in technology itself to solve some of the problems, particularly since the side arguing for the motion is saying, well, we're at the dawn of a new era. So I want, to, I want to put the question to the side that's arguing for the motion and making that point that we're at the dawn of a new era. As I pointed out in the opening, we have heard this before. Correspondence courses were going to democratize education, and they didn't. The Open University in the United Kingdom, now there are people who have degrees for that, but the great universities of England haven't flinched whatsoever. We've heard that technology was going to change the game dramatically so many times in the past. Why is it different this time, Ben Nelson? Well, I would argue it has helped. Um, And I think you have to understand the context. Think of general population uh, educational levels in the 1930s around the world. What the radio has done and television has done to teach people and disseminate information has been dramatic. For example, in India, it's something like 100 million people have learned to read from a program that adds subtitles to Indian uh, soap operas. But let me stop you there, Ben, just in the interest of time, because my, my point is that that has not had much impact on the university model, which your, par- which your partner says hasn't changed forever. Correct. Why and not? It's not interactive. It's broadcast. This is an interactive medium. Okay, let me put that to the other side, that the game changer, Rebecca Schumann, your opponents are saying, is that it's interactive this time. It truly is two-way. It's not a letter through the mail to your professor with your answers. Well, the current technology, I would say, just isn't interactive enough. 
I think that students lose motivation when they don't have their peers around them to pressure them to go to class. Um, I don't teach online at UMSL where I teach right now, but um, I have colleagues who do. And they have interactive components, but it still doesn't really engage the students. And when the students start having trouble, they tend to really just give up. Anant? I think the big difference this time around is twofold. One is the interactivity. I think the second big one is exactly the point that my opponents are making, and it's called peer-to-peer learning. If you look at Facebook and Twitter and all of these peer groups where teens and, and grown-ups in the billions are interacting with each other online, why can't we bring that? Why, why are we scared of technology? Let's bring that into our learning and education system and fold that in how people learn online so that the peer learning is part of the platform and, as on edX. The whole discussion forum is part of the learning process. Jonathan Cole. Well, uh, I'd like to just uh, quote from uh, Sherry Turkle, who wrote a wonderful little book called Alone Together. Uh, And she's an MIT colleague of yours. And she said, technology is seductive when what it offers meets our human vulnerabilities. And as it turns out, we are very vulnerable indeed. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections and the sociable robot may offer the illusions of companionship without the demands of friendship, which I think often is reflected in the social media and the kinds of contacts that people make through technology. It is not the kind of interaction that students have debating each other in class, involving the individual instructor to force people to confront their biases and presuppositions, to read texts extraordinarily closely that can be useful in other ways. I don't believe it's possible okay. yet. Ben Nelson, respond, please. Well, uh, I encourage all of you after the debate to go and find our, our student in the audience because she's been on the platform that not only enables that, but enables you to have the kinds of debates, the kind of interactions, actually is even more difficult in an offline environment. When you build a platform to teach 100,000 students, that's not your goal. Your goal is not to build a platform that optimized for one-on-one debate. When you build a platform that's about uh, bringing the seminar and adding data to pick which two students will be the ones on both sides of the debate, which kinds of analyses should you go back to in class and listen from another section so you can build upon that makes online seminars even richer. So even though we don't have as many students on those platforms, this resolution is about where the future of universities will go. The technologies are here now. They will get propagated. But one of the things that came up in the discussions about MOOCs, certainly in the heyday of excitement about their early inception, was that they could reach hundreds of thousands If they reach people in the seminar type of arrangement, it may be possible to generate some of the kind of discourse that you're talking about. But that's not where the imagery of the MOOCs really come from. So remember, I I just have to respond to that. MOOCs are and online learning in this form are two years old. We're comparing it to a thousand-year-old system which has failed. The economic model Wait, doesn't which exist. has failed, the MOOC or the 1,000-year-old uh, uh, system? The 1,000-year-old university system has well, failed. Well, it had a long, they're long still, run at 1,000 years. I <laughs> wouldn't call that failure. They still don't have an economic model. But the point is that in terms of small seminar, 
the simple mechanism we introduced on the edX platform is called a cohort. You can create Google Instant Hangouts and small groups of five and ten people interact with each other. And it's much more connecting than a professor picking one student out of a class while 300 other students are sitting there twiddling their thumbs. But I don't necessarily Rebecca want Schumann. my students to be in charge of each other. I love them. I love them to death. But I, I got rid of peer review in my class because it was like the inmates running the prison. It made the papers worse. It made things... They don't... They're bright. They're inquisitive. They're great. But they don't quite know enough yet to help each other learn in the way that I can help them learn. That's a really interesting point, And I think maybe goes to the, to, to the whole notion of authority versus uh, the, uh, the inmates running the asylum, as they say. But is that part of what this conflict is about? I think, I think we're making a mistake here. You're comparing... The best teacher, I would love to be in your class, uh, Rebecca. But how many people around the world, how many children in the U.S. or the rest of the world can afford that kind of luxury to have a great teacher in a small classroom setting? Talking about grading uh, uh, non-fixed uh, answers at the end of textbooks, we have technology today where we can grade essays using machine learning technology. And if you talk to the teachers in the California school district, they're saying they're giving their children fewer essays because they just don't have the time to grade. We have technology today in experimental form that will be able to grade essays using machine learning technology. Okay, let's let Rebecca respond to some of that. Rebecca Schumann. I mean, essay grading technology is not very good right now. It might get better. But, I mean, when I think about the idea that a robot can replace the nine years of post- college, higher education that I had, I I have to confront that technological possibility with sheer terror. I don't know if I want to be in a world where a robot can do what I have worked so hard and sacrificed so much and trained so much to do. Let's take, put aside the impact on you and how discouraging that would be to you. What about the impact on your students? Of having a robot grade their papers? Yes. They'd learn how to game the robot immediately. Well, and, and, and again, I, I, I do think that we're, we're, we're rat-holing on a, on a piece of content. I happen to agree with you both. I mean, I do think that at the very high levels of education, you do want people who are experts in the subject to grade essays. That has nothing to do about where the class occurs. The question is, what is the cost structure that is going to be built around actually disseminating that education? And even in small format, even in a scenario where we believe in, where you actually do want a very tight student-faculty interaction, 15 to 19-person classes, we still opt to use technology to facilitate the goings-on in the classroom because we think that it can enhance the experience for the student and dramatically lower the cost, where you don't need to build buildings and maintain campuses, where you can gather the students and have them experience what the world has to offer as opposed to necessarily in a very expensive, very exclusive campus environment. Jonathan Cole. Well, I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, educators have done a terrible job, uh, especially at the selective colleges, at dealing with the issue of cost. And students at Harvard graduate with no debt. They have a tremendous endowment. But the sticker price is the only thing that is talked about. So it's not as if those who can't afford it, who come from, uh, from you know, poor socioeconomic backgrounds can't go to these, uh, these great colleges. I think there's a conflation, however, if I can switch a bit, between what the purposes are of these MOOCs. Are they to democratize the world, as it were, which in some ways may well be hegemonic, who owns knowledge, uh, to reach hundreds of thousands of people, or is it to hold seminars in a different way? Those are very different types of issues and questions. It seems to me Ben is trying to do one thing, 
And it seems to me that edX is trying to do something slightly different. Is that a fair depiction of the two of you? Oh, absolutely. I think there's different ways of using technology in the classroom. And uh, Ben is doing using clicks in one way. We're using clicks in another way. I think the point here, the debate is about more clicks and fewer bricks. Can we improve the classroom experience? Can we improve the way we teach students? Can we teach more students than can have access to a great Rebecca? Can we access, can we increase educational access to millions of more students around the world that just don't have access to, uh, to the Rebeccas of the world? I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. The topic is, will online education make the lecture hall obsolete? Welcome back to the program. And Jonathan, let's take, let's then, uh, we just heard Anand talk about people not having access. In fact, it is an argument for the MOOC. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, you know, if you say don't have access uh, to uh, the MOOC, I'm not sure who you're referring to, uh, frankly. Um, well, but let's, want- let's find out. Who are you referring to? So I'm referring to uh, all the children and students that either cannot afford college or that leave college with huge amounts of debt or that simply don't have access to college. Uh, okay, uh, okay, I, that's, that's an answer. Wonderful, and that Jonathan is a Cole. wonderful aim and a wonderful objective that I actually fully endorse. But the evidence that I've seen, and it's, you know, it's not particularly good evidence, suggests that the people in remote places that can't get to MIT, can't get to you know, Amherst or Williams or wherever it might be, are people who are already educated. They are the ones who are signing on for these courses and may well be enjoying them, but it's not reaching the population yet that I think would have, you know, it is, would have very beneficial Is that correct, Ben I think, I think that's, Or Anand, is that correct? See, again, I think it's, it's how you play with numbers. So we have 2.2 uh, million learners on edX, and of that, 30%, that is 600,000, are high school and college students. And so just because... 70% of learners already have a degree doesn't mean that we are still not reaching. We are reaching more students at the college age and high school level today than the largest university in the United States. Well, Rebecca Schumann, do you, do you see the democratization argument that is to some degree being made by the other side? Well, the numbers are, it does reach more people than not having it would reach. But I, again, I agree with Jonathan that it doesn't necessarily reach the kind of people that it had originally intended to reach, and that shows in the corporate directions of edX's two main competitors, Coursera and Udacity, both of whom have decided to concentrate on corporate training uh, instead of the sort of loftier democratization of education. Um, and it also comes at the expense of people like me. Uh, there, you know, you, I love that you think that I'm irreplaceable and that everybody should just be in my class, but I am not that special. There are literally over a million low-level professors just like me in the United States right now desperate to reach students, desperate to work. And what, what for, happens to you, million, if their world comes true? Well, I guess we go from working for poverty-level wages to working for no wages. We're extinct. Sir, right down front here. My name is Ahmed. I'm a grad student at NYU. My question is, don't you think that vocational education is more suitable to be online and while uh, liberal arts 
courses or materials uh, will be okay. more of. Good. And to some degree, Jonathan Cole made that point in his opening, but your site hasn't responded to the, the sense of different kinds of material may lend themselves to different kinds of settings. So I want to, and, and one of those settings cannot be online, liberal arts. Ben Nelson. So I, I believe that there are different kinds of subject matter lend themselves to different format of student-faculty ratios. Now, you, you, can see a, you can see a creative poetry writing class online? Uh, there are creative poetry classes online, and, and uh, both in lecture format and as well as, as not. Uh, let me tell you a but, couple but of things I, but I, are don't the, are, I don't right? I don't happen to know the, the, the texture of this, but how good an experience is t- doing poetry online? Uh, in, in it's a, amazing. In, in, <laughs> I think it's phenomenal. I mean, yeah. it, uh, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm biased in that answer. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you where I, where I don't think that online instruction can compare with offline. Uh, in conservatory instruction, uh, if you are uh, training someone to be a pianist, training somebody to be a violinist, uh, very hard to deliver that level of nuance and uh, and personal okay. guidance uh, via technology. All right, so I just want to go to the side on the, the other side. You're, so your opponents have argued that there is a small sector of uh, material that doesn't lend itself. You have conceded, I think, that there are areas that would lend themselves to, uh, to online learning. John well, I, I certainly do, and that's why the University of Phoenix exists, um, to raise human capital to the point where some people can get better jobs than they have, and there's no reason why uh, those kinds of enterprises shouldn't exist. I would simply like to raise, again, for my worthy opponents, to answer the empirical questions that I raised at the very beginning. What's the cost model that will work that didn't work in the, in the 1990s? And the various other issues that have to do with intellectual property and, and the rest. If you don't answer those questions, you're living off the future. Let me, let me address the, the, the economic model question that you raised. In fact, I think you made an argument against yourself. So you said that MOOCs cost between $100,000 and $300,000 to create. You're absolutely right. They cost between $10,000 and half a million dollars to create. But the second time you offer the MOOC, or you bring that into your classroom, the third time, the fourth time, it's like a textbook. A tech for someone who's written a textbook took me five years to write the textbook, but then to stamp out a new textbook is, uh, you know, is 50 bucks, 100 bucks. So repeating is much easier. And with MOOCs and online education, that's how it is. The repetition is very cost-effective and very high quality. I want to go to another question. Sir, right there. Yeah, my name is Noel Cape, and I'm a professor at Columbia. Um, A simple model of the university is that it both creates and disseminates information. I've heard the online people say nothing about creation. Does that mean that you're, in effect, freeloaders on the university system? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to address that. Um, this uh, debate is not about uh, research. It is about uh, the dissemination of knowledge, only about the second part. So and, is that a yes to his uh, question? No, uh, it is not. Uh, I do think that what you enable when you remove the, the constriction of the campus environment from not just the student but from the professor is that you can enable much more flexible research. I'll give you a couple of very quick examples. If you do field research, having a university job where you have to show up physically to class uh, nine months out of the year does not do wonders for your career, especially before you're tenured. Or, like my father, who's a molecular biologist and is now doing structural biology, he needs to fly to the uh, particle accelerators in Europe uh, every three weeks just so he can uh, shoot photons at, at his crystals. Well, if he were still teaching, uh, he wouldn't be able to do that. So, so research can also be dramatically helped 
by the removal of physical requirements, physical presence requirements for the faculty. What do you think of that, Rebecca? Which, I mean, it doesn't apply specifically to the kind of teaching that you're doing, but you would have the ability, for example, to travel and study and do sabbaticals, et cetera, and still teach. You like that? That is so esoteric, but I guess in an esoteric way, I, I, I don't disagree with the opposite side on this particular thing. I, I do disagree. I mean, I, Jonathan Cole. I, I'm, I'm not at all sure that you have a university if you were to admit that the sole function of that university in terms of BRICS is the research mission, and all the students are basically no longer there. Now, the essence of our great universities and our great colleges is that they create knowledge. They create discoveries and inventions. I don't see how taking students out of the laboratory is going to enhance that process, since they are the people, the students, they are often doing the bench research and learning from each other through close interaction. If you take all the undergraduates away and there are no bricks, I'm not sure what kind of university is left. And on, do you want to respond to that? Let's be very careful here. Uh, I think we're taking some of the best institutions in the world, some really high-quality institutions, and and, and tarring the whole world with this utopian brush. The world is not like that. Most universities in the world are not research institutions. We really need to look at the average, the median, and universities around the world where education may be the predominant thing that happens. So I dream of a world where we have universities, where professors and others are creating content and also disseminating content, just that they do it differently. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. So on to round three. Round three, closing statements from each debater in turn. The motion, more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Anant Agarwal, CEO of edX and a professor at MIT. Um, you know, I have to say, you know, uh, we heard some great uh, statements from our uh, colleagues. Uh, I would love to take a class from Rebecca. But this is not about comparing the absolute best that you can get in a particular kind of course against uh, the online learning of yesteryear. I think we need to look at where is, where is the average going to be? Where is the majority of the, of the university, the classroom, the students going to be? But I will, I will tell you about, uh, very quickly about three students. Lord Mukendi, he came up from a family of 14 in, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He goes to the University of Cape Town to learn computer science. In his first year, his father passes away. He can't pay his tuition anymore. And so he goes off into the world, and he's been working for 10 years. Now that online learning is available, he's going back to study, and he's taking these MOOCs, and he's learning. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to get a better job because of the kind of learning that I'm doing. I can give you name after name. Amol Bhave, 15-year-old student from Jabalpur in India, took my course, did really well. He applied to uh, MIT, and he got into MIT, and now he's a sophomore at MIT. And at MIT, two out of three students today compared to virtually zero two years ago, are now doing blended online learning. And this is just two years old. So I think if you look at where the average is going to be, I think things are going to be very different going ahead. So I would like you to think about the average student around the world in terms of where universities should be. And given that, um, I really uh, urge you to think about uh, more clicks, fewer bricks, in terms of increasing access and also improving the quality of education on our campuses. Thank Thank you, you. Anand Agarwal. Thank you. 
Our motion is that more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Jonathan Cole. He is the John Mitchell Mason Professor at Columbia University. Uh, consider closely whether my worthy opponents here, and I think they've made very interesting cases, are espousing what is in fact fact, what is fiction, or what is wishful thinking. A while ago, I offered a course in law, science, and society. It was designed to challenge the presuppositions and biases of the students. At the end of the semester, one of my very smart students said to me, I love this, uh, this course, uh, the debates we had and the people I met, but every time I left this class, I had a headache, <laughs> not knowing quite what I believed in any, any longer. And I said, Sam, those headaches are a great thing. It shows that you were really thinking hard, and those debates and those doubts you had are an essential part of learning. No set of clicks will replace the student's experience. Then there are the extremely popular courses at Stanford's D School, an institute for design innovation, where one of the assignments was to rethink how people eat noodles, or an assignment that led to a news reading app that was bought by LinkedIn, LinkedIn for $90 million. The students came from every field, sciences, engineering, social sciences, etc. The students were, were taught by David Kelly, uh, one of the school's founders, and they were invited to really think of developing empathy muscles. They are also taught to forego computer screens and spreadsheets and focus on people. At the D School, says Kelly, we learn by doing. It's had a huge success with students churning out dozens of innovative products and startups. Jonathan Cole, I'm sorry your time is up. Thank you. Two minutes go by. They do. Our motion is more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Ben Nelson, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Minerva Project. I wouldn't want to end this debate without getting into the facts that Jonathan so uh, desperately wanted us to get to. So I'll give you two facts. One fact is what we actually know, not about online education, but about offline education. Professor at Harvard University, Eric Mazur, who teaches physics, wanted to know how much his students retained from his physics classes. So he surveyed them two years after the end of the course. You know what their retention rate was? 10%. The question isn't as much whether or not online education is effective, is that it can't possibly be any worse than the existing model. (laughs) In fact, even when you give students a choice as was done with the very first MOOC, one offered by Sebastian Thrun at Stanford University. Sebastian Thrun is a celebrity. He is the reason why you go to courses. He invented the self-driving car. Big guy. And he had a course of 200 students on artificial intelligence. And he gave them an option. Schmooze with me in the lecture hall, or go on version 0.1 of this terrible product and take the course online. Of the 200 students, 85% never came back to the lecture hall. 85% decided to take online course in the very first most rudimentary version of online education. You don't need much more data than that to realize that the future of universities won't be without bricks, won't be all clicks, but will certainly be far more clicks than bricks. Thank you.
Thank you, Ben Nelson. And that is our motion. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. And here to summarize her position against this motion, Rebecca Schumann. Thank you. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about my class again. My room is a seminar room. It's not a lecture hall. And this week we're reading Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, one of my favorite books, one of the greatest books of all time. And our activity this week was about uh, proverbs from the Igbo culture and how they figure into the narration of the book. And so uh, one of those proverbs is, looking at a king's mouth, one would think that he never sucked at his mother's breast. And I said to my class, this is a very evocative proverb, very provocative. What do you think it means in relation to the protagonist Okonkwo's struggle with his masculinity? And I just called on a student at random because I like doing that. It's fun. And he said, I don't know. You should never forget where you came from. And I said, okay, that's a start. Let's do it. So we went back and forth in the class, me back to him, other students to him, other students to me. But the point is that most of the students in the class had never thought about that proverb like that before. They'd never thought about it at all. This was a moment that we created together. This was a moment we created together in real time, face-to-face, in the same room, with energy you could feel. And that changed us all just a little bit. The second part of this motion is that the lecture hall is obsolete, and it's certainly true that in a thousand-person lecture, that kind of moment that you can feel is few and far between. But I don't think the answer is to put that lecture online um, in five-minute chunks, and I don't necessarily think it's to get rid of the classroom altogether for um, some fascinating-sounding space technology of the future that I haven't seen yet. Um, So... That's why I hope that you will join our team in voting no on the motion. More clicks, fewer gricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca Schumann. And that concludes our closing remarks. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. All right, so I have the final results. It is all in. You have voted twice. Our motion is this, more clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Remember, the way this worked, the team whose numbers have changed the most between the two votes will be declared our winner. On the first vote, on the motion, more clicks, fewer bricks, the lecture hall is obsolete. Before the debate, 18% agreed with this motion. 59% were against. 23% were undecided. Those are the first results. Here is the second round of voting. In the second round, the team arguing for the motion went from 18% to 44%. They picked up 26 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team against the motion, their first vote was 59%. Second vote, 47%. They lost 12 percentage points. This debate goes to the team arguing for the motion. More clicks, fewer bricks. The lecture hall is obsolete. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at Columbia University's Miller Theater in partnership with the Richard Paul Richmond Center for Business, Law, and Public Policy. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Want to get in on the debate? Follow Intelligence Squared on Twitter and jump in on the conversation. Just go to at IQ2US. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash intelligence squared. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.
Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Now, imagine you could call up a friend and say, meet me at the bar and tell me what's going on with the economy. Now imagine that's actually a fun conversation. Now stop imagining and subscribe to the Planet Money podcast. Find Planet Money on iTunes along with other NPR podcasts.